Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. Very exciting week this week. We have a president who might be getting impeached. Woohoo! And we also have two exciting guests on Inside the Hive. They are Steven Soderbergh and Scott Z. Burns, two amazing filmmakers, writers, directors. They have two movies coming out right now. There's a lot of twos going on in this show so far. Uh, Scott has done movies like An Inconvenient Truth, The Bourne Ultimatum, Side Effects, uh, a number of amazing films. The, the Informant is an, an incredibly hilarious one that he did. Uh, he has worked with Steven Soderbergh for 15 years, who is also an amazing and accomplished filmmaker. He did uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He won an Academy Award for Traffic. He's done all the Oceans movies, Aaron Brockovich, which I absolutely love. is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm really, really excited to talk to these guys about two movies that they have coming out. One is called The Report, and one is called The Laundromat. The Report talks about the CIA interrogation tactics and how it was uh, they were kind of brushed under the, under the rug and hidden by not just the Bush White House, but by the Obama White House, too, and uh, the laundromat, which gets into the story of the Panama Papers and how lots of people made lots and lots and lots of money and screwed over lots of poor people. So without further ado, Scott and Stephen. Stephen, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm I'm very, very excited for this conversation. Uh, I have more questions than we have time for, which is usually the case when I have incredible guests like you guys. Um, So let's get started uh, I, I really want to start with the impeachment hearings, but we're going to wait to go there. Uh, and I want to talk about the laundromat. So I, get, I got to see it this week. It comes out Friday. Uh, it's an amazing film. The question I have is when you guys kind of sat down and started to do this, it's a two-part question to start off with. When I first looked at the Panama Papers, I, it was so insanely overwhelming of like where to start and where to end and, and where to come in that I didn't even know how to read them at first. It was, it was you know, I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Um, how do you decide where to come in on the story and, and, and whose perspective to tell it from? And, like, where did you go from there? Well, I can start. Um, often in a case like this, you end up determining what you ought to do or need to do by determining what you don't want to do and what you shouldn't do. So in this case, I think Scott and I felt there'd been some very, very good uh, dramas based on real stories about journalists, whistleblowers, and and we didn't feel um, that that was the, the right approach if we were going to have it stick in people's memories. So that's when we started discussing the idea of making a very, very dark comedy out of it. And then the other, the other challenge is, like a lot of people, um, I read the story when it broke, and it seems like the activity that rich people get up to, to, to keep hold of their money, but how does that really affect me or anyone um, who's not super wealthy on a day-to-day basis? So that's, that's kind of where the conversation began. Also, I think there's a, for me, there was sort of a utilitarian kind of part of this, which was I'm, I'm not terribly financially literate and, you know, I didn't understand a lot of the tools that people use in these kinds of international banking structures and, and what the secrecy world was. And so for me, I kind of needed to turn the telescope around and figure out a way of writing a movie for people who who aren't familiar with this. And so it, it became important to start with a point of view of people who are victims of a world in which this kind of thing goes on, but may not be aware of it. So that was one part of it. The other part that became really important was born out of the nature of the work that Stephen and I have have done over the last 15 years or so, which is 
he's always encouraged me to try and find different ways of telling stories. And as the time that we've worked together has gone on, I've recognized that the way that I'm going to get his attention is to bring him something new and different in a different kind of structure. And so we had both just seen a movie that we loved called Wild Tales by a director named Damien Ziffrin. And I was really intrigued by the story, by this, by that sort of structure, by an, antholog an anthological kind of approach. Um, and I'd always loved the Decalogue, and I wanted to try my hand at writing something like that. So that structure and the need to, tr to sort of turn the telescope around really informed where I went in. When you guys are working on these films, you've worked on so many films that are based on true stories, and you know we're going to get to the report too. I walk away, and I literally just want to find a rich person and punch them in the fucking head, quite honestly, after I see these things. And I'm like, what are you thinking? How could you do this to other human beings? Do you have that feeling when you're working on these films? Or are you like, okay, well, we're telling the story here, so we're making the world a little bit of a better place by doing that? Or is, or do you sometimes like walk away when you, you at the end of the film, you know, you have these, and I'm not giving anything away here, you have this moment where the, the, the bad guys kind of get away with it, as they always do, the rich bad guys. Like, what is your feeling at the end of this process? Well, it's hard at times not to despair at the <laughs> fact that one of the skill sets that human beings have is to find the worst possible application for a new piece of knowledge or, or a new activity. Um, our ability to find the basement or in, in the basement under the basement is, is pretty pronounced. And this is really, you know, Scott and I talked about this, this is really this kind of specific economic behavior is just, the, you know, the outgrowth of an impulse that human beings have to accumulate and retain power. Uh, we're status conscious. Uh, we have big egos. Um, so it's even larger to me than this issue of capitalism or any sort of financial or political structure. It's kind of a human being problem. Uh, step one, as you said, is at least to make people aware of it. If they start asking questions about what's around them, including who owns the building that we're sitting in right now, who owns all the real estate in this neighborhood, that's a good way to start. It's probably yeah. Scott, right? You own the building? I do kidding, not kidding, own kidding. this building. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think that that's, that's true. And one of the, the questions that I guess I always go back to, is it that some people just don't have any empathy or is it that somehow they've engaged in some convoluted stream of logic that justifies their behavior and so when you see a system like the offshore system a system that allows people to hide ill-gotten gains um you know you kind of go well so how did we go from having governance that exists to protect us from our worst impulses to governance that creates structures to allow people to express them in ways that, you know, that really damage us? One of the things that happened, you know, around the same time as the Panama Papers leak was Stephen had encouraged me to read a book um, called Thieves of State that deals with corruption and does a really amazing, simple job of laying out why the world is so fucked up. And one of the things that it, it, it shows is that it's not that we don't have enough money to solve a lot of these problems, whether it's healthcare or education or the environment or, or, or anything. It's just there are people who are really benefiting from the status quo and they have zero interest in change and we do have enough money, we just don't have oversight and we don't have the kind of leadership that is interested in creating a fair world. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, if you redistributed wealth in the United States, I think that, I forget the exact number, but I think it's around, each each family would have, I think, around $700,000 at their disposal to do whatever they wanted with. Instead, you have 
Jeff Bezos is worth $132 billion alone. It's, uh, you know, the top four richest people in the world are worth the same amount of money as the bottom $3.6 billion. It's, I mean, it's just astounding. And then when you kind of look at the way, uh, you know, the guys in your movie acted and the justifications they made, it, it, I guess it makes a little more sense. So, so tell us a little bit, if you just, if you can tell the listeners a little bit about the, the, the two guys that we see the eyes of this story through, uh, uh, Mosek and Fonseca. And I believe you guys actually spoke to them, right? Scott. Yeah. Um, I Skyped with both of them, with, um, with Jake Bernstein, who, who wrote the book Secrecy World and was really helpful to all of us throughout the process um, and is one of the ICIJ reporters who helped deal with this leak. But Jake was sort of my guide through you know, a world that I knew nothing about. And as I started to build the script, I found it very useful to have him, and I thought the audience might want the same thing. And, you know, and and Stephen used, you know, Gary and Antonio, who are incredibly charming as the audience's guide through the same world. Um, it was interesting, because a lot of what Ramon Fonseca, what Antonio Banderas says in the movie is really pulled from the conversation that I had with him, which is that this isn't their fault. This is a system in which their business operated, but they didn't write the laws. They didn't create the system. And that before someone wound up in an, you know, talking to someone from Mossack Fonseca, they probably spoke to a banker and a lawyer and a wealth manager and were given guidance that these structures were the right tools for them to employ to conceal their wealth and avoid paying, you know, their fair share or conceal the way that their money was made in the first place. Um, and I find his trajectory through life really interesting. I mean, the guy grew up, you know, with, you know, this, this very socialist approach to Catholicism um, where, you know, it, it, it espoused fairness and that the meek shall inherit the earth. And that he started from that place. Then he went to law school and ended up working at the UN, where he was tr still trying to, you know, to save the world. But, you know, as he asks in the movie, like maybe the world doesn't want to be saved. And so he, you know, he went from being, you know, what we might all think of as this white hat and this guy who was trying to make the world a better place, to being someone who served very wealthy people. So in the film, you guys take the approach of it's, it opens up uh, with these guys, you know, explaining to the audience what money is about. But then it goes to Niagara Falls where you uh, you meet Meryl Streep and uh, and there's a boating accident. And of, and she starts to to uh, try to figure out how she can get the insurance money she's owed, which, of course, is tied to these guys. Do these guys feel any remorse for the fact that people's lives are are destroyed as a result of the of them taking advantage of the system or do they just say hey this is the system and we're just living in it um i think that they would probably answer it both ways i think it's very easy for them to kind of pendulum back and forth between being able to obviously now say that you know the world is unfair and that, and that they didn't know that some of the people who they were working with were involved in these kinds of scams. Um, I don't know if that's true. What I do know is that people are supposed to do due diligence at various levels of, of banking and, and law, and that you do have some responsibility to have knowledge of what your clients were really up to. Um, so, you know, in a way, I, the question is sort of moot. Like, if well, I think they yeah, I think their attitude is we can't help that. People send drugs via FedEx. Should we get rid of FedEx? You know, that's not their problem. It's so fascinating that people can make those justifications. It's like, I mean, you know, it gets into it. It just is amazing that that, that they pull this off. Okay, so Stephen, I have a question. So you've been making movies since the 1980s, and uh, not to age you here. And one thing that I have found uh, incredibly interesting over the past f even five years alone, um, and maybe more so 10 from the Obama administration forward, is that 
media, uh, like big long form journalism, does not have the impact it once did. Uh, and the things that people, you know, and part of it is that there's so many media outlets. You have all these blogs, you have um, all these websites that exist that are just, and it's just an, an avalanche of information that's being thrown at us. Everything's kind of written the same now. Um, we don't know what's true, what's not, and so on. But the thing that has changed is that we've seen more and more films that come out that are trying to tell these true stories. Um, and it seems like, I don't know if, the, if you if you're, have a theory on this, whether like the turning point was kind of like an Aaron Brockovich era, but it seems like this is like now the thing. Um, do you think that that filmmakers have more of a responsibility to tell these true stories today and to to kind of get these these this information out from a cultural perspective or is it just is it just storytelling and it doesn't really matter like what's your theory on this and on why this has kind of happened my theory is that it's happening instinctually uh the people are storytellers are responding to what's around them um certainly market forces play a part in that um, but I, but I think generally speaking, it's just we. I think we all have this creeping sense over the last uh, maybe since nine eleven um, of of the trajectory of all things being somewhat alarming, um, and and that there are serious uh, issues that we we all need to start thinking about, and and as a result, if you can tell a true story or a story that's based on um, a factual series of events. And instead of reading it, you have cool actors in it and there's music and <laughs> you get to travel and see different places in the world. You know, uh, uh, there's a certain appeal to that. Now, I would argue there's also a huge responsibility that comes with that when you're going to tell a story that's ostensibly true. But my sense is it's not a it's not a sort of articulated position. It's just people who are interested in stories realizing that uh, most of the interesting stories out there are, are happening in front of us. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so switching gears a little bit um and this is on the same line you know in the report which you uh you're both involved with and um you take a completely different approach so in the laundromat it's kind of comical um uh it's you know very stylistic beautifully shot it's you know all green screen as we learn at the end which is just the f most fascinating part uh it's um and then with the report you take this approach of a very very dark very hard-hitting uh, um, I believe almost all factual. Is that right, Scott? Or were there some liberties taken? Or there are things that are compressed that like had to be compressed because the thing's only two hours long and is you know. So yeah, there's there's characters who I had to turn into one person who sort of operated in the same position over you know the seven years that the movie takes place, um, and there are some other you know, sort of dramatizations. But as much as I could, um, I, I stayed close to the story as I understood it. So can you guys talk a little bit about how you decided with these two films? One is kind of a comedic approach, um, both incredibly important topics, both very painful topics to think about uh, from a societal standpoint. Uh, uh, and one is kind of this comedic approach, and one is is a very serious approach. How do you kind of how did you decide? Okay, this is what we're doing with both of these. Well, the report sort of predated all yeah. this. Scott's been working on that for a long time, and I jumped on the train uh, late in the process and tried to work my way through the the cars <laughs> up to where Scott was sitting. Um, so that that I'm sure that had an influence on my suggestion that we we go 
180 degrees um, the other way because I knew, you know, the report was well into its process of being made, and neither of us, I think, wanted to have it feel similarly. Yeah, some of it goes all the way back to something that, you know, Stephen taught me when I was working on the script for The Informant. You know, there's a, a line that Mark Whitaker actually said at one point. He showed his wire that he was wearing for the FBI to his gardener and said, they should call me Special Agent 0014 because I'm twice as smart as 007, which is... <laughs> funny, especially if you think about the math involved. Um, but, uh, like, you know, what Stephen said to me at that point was there's no way that line can comfortably exist in anything other than a comedy. And so if you're going to go into the absurdity of some of these things, you, it sort of steers you. And, and, if you're going to be in service to the story, the other thing that is important is we know from science and neuroscience, and this is something Stephen and I have spoken about quite a bit over the last five, six years, is that people are more open to certain things if you can get them to laugh or sing or something. Um, and so with some kind of material, I think it, it does behoove you to consider the funny approach. The other thing, quite simply, was... Again, like I knew that if I was going to try and get Steven's attention as a director, I needed to do something different um, than, you know, the obvious story of, of journalists pulling this thing apart. Um, and then I think just for my own self and sanity, I've never been good at being any sort of genre writer in that I think once I've finished a script, my my feeling inside is to push off of it and try and go write a different way, which, you know, is probably a little bit inspired from having, you know, been around Stephen for a long time because I think he does a similar thing, although we've actually never even talked about why. But I, I've always sensed that he does different things every time because you learn stuff and you, you want to go and, and explore another thing and learn more. And so to some degree, the laundromat was a reaction to how serious um, and how by the book I felt the report had to be. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think the two informed each other inside of me um, as much as they did, you know, externally. So with the report, um, you know, it tells the story of, of Daniel Jones, uh, who's kind of, you know, tasked to lead the investigation into the post-9-11 uh, detention er interrogation uh, uh, program. What I found so, like, what I just, like, clapped so much about was that you threw everyone under the bus, the Democrats, the Republicans. It was like, it, you know, what I, I think that tends to happen in Hollywood um, – and in the media, depending on which channel you click on, is that there's a viewpoint and it comes across and, and we're nice to one group of people and not the other. What was the decision to decide to like say, okay, this is we're going to tell the story the this way, the right way, uh, and we're going to you know we're going to point out that that Obama didn't do a great job and Bush didn't do a great job and this person and that person. Uh, were you were you like okay, this is just the truth and this is how we do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I made a decision. I think the decision was to try and tell the story the way Dan experienced it. And so that that obligated me to, to you know, be very honest 360 degrees. And, and that, you know, was an interesting experience because I'm, you know, I'm honored that I was able to vote for Barack Obama twice and that I saw that happen in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean that he is a saint or that he needs to be perfect. Um, you know, I think that one of the challenges we're facing right now, and, and what you said is so true about like what's happened to the news, is that you have to fly someone's flag. And I don't think that that's my responsibility as a storyteller at all, specific, you know, especially when it came to a story like this. 
And although in my mind, the Bush administration and the CIA, you know, are in a whole other category for allowing this program to happen and for concealing it and for, you know, all of the other things that happened, you know, the, the fact that Barack Obama said it appears we tortured some folks, but it's time to turn the page, to me is insufficient for the nature of, of the wrong that was done. Um, and so there's, you know, there's plenty of blame to go ar- around. When you think about the film and the, um, you know, the torture scenes and shooting those, uh, they're difficult to watch. I'm sure they're even more difficult to experience and even more difficult to act and so on. Do you, um, uh, what's the kind of, you know, when you're shooting those moments, uh, does it piss you off or do you, or, or is it like, okay, I'm actually telling the story. Uh, other people can see this. They'll see why this is wrong. Uh, you know, I guess part of it is for, as a as a consumer of these films, I walk away from them thinking like I'm angry a lot of the times um, at the fact that the world exists in the way it does, and and I'm cur- I guess what I'm trying to get at is like the earlier question too is is what do you guys feel as you're making them? Well, I mean the torture stuff was really challenging, and there are early drafts of the script where there was no torture. Um, and it was pointed out to me by actually, you know, Alberto Mora, who was the the Navy's general counsel during the program and spoke out against it, that if I didn't show it, then I was, in a sense, promulgating the sins of the CIA when they destroyed the tapes. And that, the you know, the beauty and the responsibility of cinema is that pictures do paint a thousand words and it's a lot different saying the word waterboarding than actually seeing it mm. and on set you know as a director you you have a, a very different set of responsibilities because you're the manager of all of the people on set who are working with you's experience um, and so i had a really long conversation with the actor who played, you know, Abu Zubaydah. And I said, if at any point you feel uncomfortable with anything we're doing, you know, please tell me you should not feel pressured because there are a lot of people around. We are all here for your safety. And, you know, this is not about exploiting you. And he, you know, looked at me and said, you need to do what happened. Because if I don't help you communicate that, then I haven't served my people and this side of the story. And, you know, it's amazing when you get to work with people who are so clear in, in what their role in the collaboration is. So that, you know, that was really gratifying. On the other hand, what, I, what we tried to do and what Stephen was really helpful with me during the edit with was that it's more about the torturers than the tortured. And I tried to spend more time pointing the camera at the people doing this um, than at the people who are having it done to them, because at least in the case of KSM, you know, I don't want the audience to feel bad for him. I want the audience to feel bad about what we did to him because of the fact that we did that has made it very tricky to bring him to justice. When you guys are, are working on not just these two films, um, uh, do you feel, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stories out there right now about the Joker and if if, you know, if it's going to kind of send a message that violence is okay and 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 so on and so forth and when you look at, you know, Zero Dark 30 which tells the complete opposite side of the story of the report and it's almost as if it was written by the CIA and themselves, um do you think just in filmmaking in general when you talk about these these important topics uh, how much of a responsibility filmmakers have in Hollywood to tell certain stories and not tell others? I mean, there was the the film that was going to come out this this year that was canceled about the um, I forget the type, the name of it, but it was a, a Blumhouse movie where uh, there was a bunch of liberals hunting down uh, a bunch of Trump supporters essentially and killing them, and um, it of course went a little bit too far, and 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 they decided not to. To put it out, is there is there a point at which you you have a responsibility to not tell a story? 
Well, I think you have to recognize the power of the medium that you're employing to tell a story. And a lot of that, a lot of the decisions about how far to push something are personal um, and reflect what you like to see in a movie or, or an aspect of the world or of the society you live in that you want to emphasize for better or worse. Um, but there's certainly, I've certainly seen films, well-regarded films that I felt were, um, that took a stance that I don't agree with, that executed some of their ideas in ways that I felt were um, potentially, if not harmful, at least not really contributing to a sort of rational debate on an important subject, but we're indulging in, in a form of, you know, propaganda that, that I've found that I would find uncomfortable, but it's very, it's very personal. Um, and when, whenever we sort of dip into subject matter that is, that is going to be provocative and controversial, I think our idea is this thing has to hold up 20 years from now. It, it cannot be looked at as something that was generated out of a white-hot emotional knee-jerk response to an event. It needs to hold up decades from now when we know more about this than we know today. So that's always my goal. But yeah. when, you, when, you start, when you started with, the, with filmmaking, you, did you have that same belief as uh, the responsibility or, or was it just entertainment back then and it kind of morphed as, as films and society and responsibility did? No, I had a sense as soon as I started as a teenager to look at films as something more than entertainment but something that I may want to participate in, I, I very early on had um, a, a sort of attitude or a belief system about what I thought when I thought a movie crossed the line for me into a territory that made me uncomfortable or that I couldn't support I mean that's I think that's just part of your who you are um, and again it's it's a very personal thing in the case of something like Aaron Brockovich I just wanted to make sure that nobody on the PG&E side could write an article in which they pointed out a particular scene and said that never happened. So we just made sure that that wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's pretty. It's a little different in that it took me a lot longer to decide that this was an art form that I was going to try and participate in. But certainly, as someone who loved movies growing up, like you know seeing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Serpico and, and, and movies like that that I happened across, you know, when I was sort of turning into a human being capable of forming my own thoughts, those were such powerful movies about, about corruption and about how people were, were treated um, that, you know, that I became aware of the power of these things. I mean, you know, we learned a lot about the Vietnam War from the films that were made five, six years after it. And I do think there is a necessary cooling off period. I mean, we tend to get the first draft of history wrong um, a lot of the time. And so on one hand, there is a pressure within the industry to strike while the iron's hot and be the first one to make the movie about something. On the other hand, there's, there is something about letting the dust settle and letting you as a creative person digest that experience and, and come to maybe a fuller understanding of it rather than, than trying to be first. You know, a few years ago, right after we did The Informant, um, Stephen and I talked about doing a movie about Lenny Riefenstahl um, which was going to be sort of a movie about making a movie, which I think is really, you know, apropos of your question, because it's like I understand, you know, and, and understand it really well now that on one hand it's great to find out that as a filmmaker someone wants to make your movie. On the other hand, it's really bad if you find out that the Nazis are your studio. And so, <laughs> like, there is this sense of responsibility that Stephen is talking about that, you know, 
you can't want it so bad that it clouds your judgment. And, and that's why I think research is really important. And whenever I make a deal to try and write a script, I will always ask the studio, can we put aside money for a research person to help me? Because, you know, especially in a world like ours where there is so much news and news that may not be accurate and so many different ways to look at these things that, you know, I need to believe that there are still facts. Otherwise, I don't know how to get up in the morning. Um, and I want, I want to make sure that I learn the facts. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. When you, um, uh, when you look at the media in general, um, it has it has changed in a way that is kind of almost incomprehensible in the last few years. And uh, you two of all people know the power of, of videos and visuals on screens and so on and so forth. Do you look at the world that we live in today with like the Fox news and the, and you know, the, the rise of deep fakes and all these insane things that are now happening with, with screens and, uh, and the world that we live in and kind of think like, Oh shit, we did this wrong. We, we, you know, we should kind of take a take a beat and kind of rethink how this is how we're doing all of this, whether it's from film to 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 cable news to to the apps on our devices to the way we consume content to critics and reviews to I mean the whole thing. It kind of seems like it's a little bit broken. Do you kind of agree or disagree or? Well, it sort of gets back to what I was saying before. If there's a bad version of something to be had, we'll find it. Um, and so that's where we are. I think the most, the strangest thing to me is I used to, I used to look to the news to tell me what happened, but not what it meant. And we're now in a place where everyone now feels forced who reports the news to editorialize on top of just saying that this thing happened today. And that that's that's a new that's a new space to me, and a very complicated one, because now you've you've kind of pulled everything over into a, a subjective arena where you can make any argument for for any case that you want to mount, and and what actually happened um, becomes sort of obscured. So that's that's crazy. Am I surprised? No. Um, do I have any ideas of how to solve that? Why, no. why are you not surprised? Because you kind of saw it happening in real well, time this is as what, it was happening? Yeah, this is what people, we're all going through our lives, living a narrative that we think is the narrative we should be living, believing the things that we think we should believe. And if we see an opportunity to put that story forward, um, we're going to do it. So, no, I'm not surprised that it's turned out this way. Yeah, I, I kind of I agree, and I think one of the problems we have right now is that confirmation bias appears to be an incurable disease, and even you know the people who might try and cure it immediately fall victim to suspicion, you know, and and it's true on on such a rudimentary level. I mean, we came up with a great tool to help save humankind and benefit children when we created vaccines. And now there are people running around saying that vaccines are bad, even though the science seems, you know, conclusive that 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 they actually help save people. Um, and like it, it really isn't surprising. I remember one time reading a story about the history of radiation, and at one point, some shoe store found this thing that you could go and stand on, and it would blast an X-ray of your feet. And even though you don't really need that to buy a pair of shoes, it was a device that made their shoes and their short shoe stores seem much more advanced and much cooler than anybody else's. 
And of course, there was a proliferation of like testicular cancer and other things because that's really not a great way to use an x-ray. Um, and so I think it really shows that, you know, that all of all of this technology is really brought to you by the same people who decided, it, you know, you could cure diseases with leeches. So <sighs> I'm, I'm not surprised that when we have a cool new thing, you know, immediately after figuring it out, the next person's job is figuring out how to how to abuse it. I heard a story recently that uh, during, I think it was World War One, uh, that there were people in America that would stone uh, Dosh Hound dogs to death because they were German. Uh, so, you know, there's not a lot of logic uh, a lot of the time <laughs> with people. It's just, I think what's so, what's so interesting to me, who, you know, been working in media for, for 20 years and um, and seeing the power dynamics change and... Uh, and how powerful the screen has become uh, versus other mediums that have lost a lot of their power and influence, and uh, and then how quickly the screen became kind of subverted in a very gross and disgusting way. Um, it's just you know it's it's so interesting to see what's happening now and if there's a solution to it. And I, I don't actually know if there is. Um, uh, one question I have is so you you know we, when we talk about all these stories. Um, of corruption, of people doing bad things. Uh, the worst person of all is currently in the White House. And I'm curious, why hasn't there been, if you're, you maybe have a theory on this, why haven't there been like any big Trump movies or TV shows or something yet that really kind of, if these are, if this is the medium that has the truest impact and the biggest impact, why hasn't there been anything that's told the true story about him? Is it because the story's still unfolding? Or Yeah, yeah it's too soon. Yeah, and, and, and people are sort of, you know, kind of going around the edges. I mean, there's a Roy Cohen doc that I know is, you know, coming out this year, probably already did come out. I think um, someone, maybe Showtime, has the cartoon president. Um, but there is sort of a traditional drift from from books to movies. And, you know, we're seeing you know, books like Wolf's book and other books that, you know, were these tell-alls and, you know, they'll slowly migrate to, to, you know, other platforms. Yeah. I think that's, it's too soon. We're not, we're years away, I think, from really getting the kind of information that you would need to have a fresh angle. And so it, on a Trump story. Yeah. And, and but whether it's him or anybody who's in that position, um, mm. it's it's just too early to my mind. When you guys um, look at uh, the uh, I've seen this kind of theme happening in Hollywood right now. There's a lot of um, a lot of people that are trying to do stories on uh, climate change. Um, and is the, is is now the right time for that? I mean, I'm curious if that's you know, what the thing is that people are now interested in getting stories out about that, that is so important from a cultural and society, societal perspective. Scott and I are working on it, actually. Uh, we have a project we've been developing about that issue. And the trick, once again, is to make it factually plausible and accurate and yet also entertaining enough so that people don't feel like they're in class. Um, but it's something we take really seriously and we have... We do have an angle on it that I think is pretty intriguing if we can, if we can figure it out. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple really basic, if you, you know, if you divorce yourself from it being, in my estimation, the single biggest existential threat that the world faces or maybe has ever faced, aside from the nuclear bomb, um, it does dramaturgically present a couple of problems in that, you know, you tend not to be able to experience it very rapidly. And there's a question that, you know, I wish I knew the answer to, which is what is the event horizon for a human being? You know, I think that when I was a producer on An Inconvenient Truth, and I sometimes think the most unfortunate thing that happened with that movie was we released it in, I think, 2005. And so it became very convenient to talk about things that would happen before the end of the century. And that was 95 years away. Um, mm. And 
evidently the event horizon for human beings is something shorter than 95 years. And we get very seduced by this notion of our children and we have to do things for our children. And I think that's true, but even the event horizon there is maybe not what we think it is. I mean, I think a lot of people in America and all over the world, the event horizon for their children is next summer and if they're going to summer camp or or Christmas break or getting them into college. And so I don't I, I think that every human being, because of their socioeconomic situation, has a different event horizon that allows them to ward off a thing like climate change at whatever distance they want it to be in that moment. And so how do we bring it closer? And it's easy to dismiss large-scale catastrophe and dystopia as being science fiction. And that's sort of where we initially went with climate change dramaturgically. And I think that we need to find other kinds of stories that are more of a human scale that aren't necessarily geologic. Because before we get to what three degrees Celsius of climate change would mean, which is probably the end of agriculture and maybe the end of life, we're going to hit all the other numbers in between now and then. And there will be lots of smaller cat catastrophes that are of a human scale. But, but, isn't, but part of the, the biggest problem with a story like this is, as you just said, is it's, ha it's, not hap it's happening, but it's not happening. I remember I read a novel once that begins with... Um, uh, this catastrophe where the earth starts to slow down and eventually by the end of the novel, of course, it's, you know, catastrophic to civilization. But in the beginning, everyone's watching the news and they can't really feel that the earth has slowed down just a few seconds and it's starting to slow down even more. And so they're like, well, let's just go about our day. Like, there's nothing really else to do. And it seems like with, well, first of all, you've got, you've got the anti-vaxxer world of climate change, the people who don't want to believe it or don't think it's important and so on. But then at the same time, you have this, you have this thing that you don't see happen uh, based on your immediate, you know, the things that you do. How do you tell people a story like that? Well, I mean, it's a huge problem. I think one of the interesting things, I remember reading once that human beings have amazing peripheral vision. And so if a tiger is coming at you from the side, you're actually really adept at moving very quickly away from that immediate peripheral threat. What's more dangerous to us is a pack of cigarettes, which is a slow-moving threat. And, you know, with, that comes with an ad campaign, that comes with a cultural kind of thing that goes with it, which tigers don't really have a great ad campaign right now. And so we... You know, not all threats are as easily identifiable and, you know, and, I, and not all, all threats are as available to storytellers as others. So it presents just a different set of challenges. And you're right, like a slow-moving car accident is really dangerous because what it is is a bridge collapse that comes from infrastructure breakdown, not, you know, not someone drinking too much. Yeah, it's not, you know, the hope part of it is the problem. <laughs> um, there's just no green version of human beings on this planet. And so the, the, that's really the trick, is how do, you, how do you make something that's just not a complete downer and encourages people to, to at least consider moment to moment whether or not we can slow this process this inevitable process down significantly. I think that's the, that's yeah. the question. Yeah. I mean, you know, a 16 year old kid, you know, kind of said it best when, when Greta said, you know, yes, hope is important, but not as important as action. And that once we have action, there will be all kinds of hope, but we're not at the action part yet. Which is terrifying in itself. What's, I think what's so, striking is when you you know you mentioned inconvenient truth and i remember when that came out and and everyone was talking about it and then it just kind of went away and now we're all trying to talk about it and you know there's this orange buffoon in the white house who's consuming most of the airtime and it's just you know it's terrifying when you kind of look at i think i think scott you may have told me that um the, like some of the little side effects you see like you know with if with if the if the temperature goes up three degrees 
you know, turbulence changes and you may not be able to fly during the day, you know, because of the winds and so on. I mean, there's all these amazing, terrifying things that could happen as a result of this that we're just oblivious to. Well, and there is something in, you know, in an inconvenient truth that people seem to conveniently forget, which is, you know, Dr. Hansen said in 2003 or four that we have 10 years to make you know, make changes. And we passed that threshold and we didn't make changes. And so now the question is, and this is where it becomes tricky for everybody involved in the environmental movement and it goes back to what Stephen said about hope. So if you believe in science and you had a scientist say there was a 10 year threshold and you went over it and you didn't do anything, you can't really move the horizon because otherwise you're saying that your last science was dubious. And so what people have to realize is that, you know, those those yard markers aren't going to change. And so, yeah, we still need to do something because we can stop the worst things from happening, but we can't pretend that we haven't already caused, you know, things that are going to have real consequences. And they're going to have consequences like a lot of things, like even what happens in the laundromat that are socioeconomic and they're going to be felt by by poor people and marginalized peoples first. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Uh, Stephen, you you said, I think uh, maybe it was after Traffic or I forget which movie it was, but at one point you said that you, you no longer read critics' reviews. And we one of the things that's, it's, you know, what's so fascinating from a, as I've written about technology forever, and I always find the nuance of the smaller things the most fascinating in the stories of technology. And you know, one of the little side things is this: this these websites called Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb that that have these little ratings and so on. And it seems that there's so much weight given to um, to how a movie, the number, and I, I fall for it too sometimes. My wife and I will be looking for something to watch, and we'll be like, oh, what's the, you know, what's that number that sits next to it, and, and decide from there if we're going to watch it. And at the same time, you know, because of the rise of social media, you have this, this kind of need for people to be meaner on the internet. And, and, I, and I've looked, I, I was going to do a story on this for Vanity Fair at one point, that reviews have gotten drastically meaner. Depending, it doesn't matter if it's books, if it's movies, or whatever. It's people. They're trying to say the, you know, the the one liner and the zinger and the and the funny lead or whatever that is going to get them the most attention, and not necessarily thinking about the uh, all the people that worked on a film or a book or whatever. Do you think that? Do you think that this is? Is, is there anything that can be done to solve that problem of the reliance we have on, you know, 20 people deciding uh, the outcome of a, of a movie? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think the Does pro- it bother you? Um, well, that's why I don't, that's why I don't it's, read it's, that stuff. It's the one asshole theory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's understandable. I have to step back and look at it and remember People are the target for so much content. They're just, everybody's looking for a filter. So, you know, this is the filter that a lot of people are using currently. I certainly see things rated on there um, at a number that I think is, is way too low. And I see things that are rated with numbers that I think are way too high. So it's not it's not a metric that I pay a lot of attention to, whether it's just Rotten Tomatoes or just an aggregate of what the reviews are. You don't know, you know, in many cases, you've made something that that can possibly sync with what's going on culturally, and then sometimes you make something that's out of sync uh, for whatever reason. So it's not, I can't be, I just can't be pulled by that, that sort of rear view mirror thinking for me and I'm always working and thinking about the next thing. Um, so I don't envy that, that young filmmakers who come up now can, um, again, if they've just made something that at the moment doesn't seem to be perfectly in sync with what everybody who's reviewing movies or television wants to see, they get hammered 
and, and they're really hobbled and it affects their ability to get future work. That's unfortunate, especially when they're doing good work. But it's, um, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know that there's, I don't know that we've solved anything today that we've discussed, but I definitely don't know how to solve that. <laughs> what were you, Scott, you, what, the one asshole theory, what's that? Um, that's a Steven theory that... Well, it's my whole thing of like, you're throwing the best party in the world and there are 40 people there and it's going great. One asshole starts to act out and the cops show up, party's over. The assholes have a disproportionate, destructive effect on everything. I encourage everybody to read this book that came out a couple years ago called Assholes, A Theory. I think the author's name is Aaron James. Um... It's pretty fascinating. He was somebody who just felt this is a subject we need to talk about um, because it has an impact on our lives. And I think he's right. So I, um, I'm, for me, I'm, I'm still about hope. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just looked up Assholes of Theory. It's got a 71% review, so that's well, great. Okay, uh, so 29% of the people reviewing it are assholes. <laughs> are assholes. <laughs> um. Do you, uh, a couple more questions and then I'll let you guys escape. Um, do you guys, when you look at the current state of the, of, of the film industry of Hollywood, it's, I mean, it's, it's going through the big, I don't think it's even remotely close to where it's going to uh, be as far as the disruption goes, but it's going through the very beginnings of a massive disruption with, you know, the, all these corporations, uh, you know, Warner Media and Netflix and Amazon and you know I know you guys work with a lot of these companies, but like it's going through this 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 kind of changing of the guard in in many respects. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is it like I know that you're both people who really care about these kind of not indie films, but kind of along that genre of like uh, you know not hundred million dollar smash 'em up movies, but but more stories that are important and uh and and telling something that that needs to be told does the future of the industry is it going to be affected and those kind of stories going to be affected by what's taking place today do you think boy i don't know i can't even predict what happened a week ago um so it's it's hard to look at the landscape and sense where it's gonna where it's gonna end up um certainly as far as just movies are concerned um, a lot of the things that I said in this speech that I gave in San Francisco six years ago about economic forces pushing a certain kind of film uh, further and further to the margins, that's even truer today than it was then. Um, I don't think that means those movies are going away. I just think they're going to have to fight harder to get eyeballs. Um, yeah, I guess... I look at the landscape currently, and I think in the next three to five years, um, there's got to be either more consolidation or one of these players is going to wake up one morning and look at their P&L statement and go, why are we in the content business when our, our bread and butter is this other business? Um, but again, I could be wrong. Something could happen that could uh, tilt everything in another direction. I'd be terrified right now if I was a creative executive at a studio. That would be scary. Because? Because I don't know what's coming. I, I wouldn't, there's just no, there, there's no sense that any of these places uh, could exist in the form that they exist today, a year from now, two years from now. It's just, yeah, there are times when you feel like, oh, this is, this is like when the meteor got rid of the dinosaurs. You know, that's what we're witnessing in the movie business. That's possible. It may not be true, but it may be true. Hmm. Um, all right. So last couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, if you, if, what's your, like, if you had one movie that you could do left, you only have one, what would it be? That's like you've got your last, last hurrah well, that's easy for me because sort of what Scott was talking about earlier, I'm, I'm always looking for a project that will in some way annihilate what I just did. 
So, so the, the <laughs> thing that's in front of me is always the most exciting thing. And the thing that I think may be, well, I guess the bottom line is I always view the thing that I'm working on at the moment as the, the, if, if somebody had to only see that, then that's what they should see. That's the attitude I take toward it when I'm making it. Um, so that's, that's, that's how I view it. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a, a lot of unmade screenplays on my computer, so it's not <laughs> it's not unthinkable to me that the last thing that I did is quite possibly the last thing that will ever get done. And and I don't know a lot of creative people who you know who don't feel that way. And I think if you've stopped feeling that way and you've allowed yourself to be convinced that you're a brand and and not a person who has to get up and wrestle with a blank page every morning, then that, you know, that's a whole other issue, I guess. You know, for me, I guess the way I would answer that is a few years ago, Stephen and I sat down and talked about, you know, we had an idea for a movie that was going to be a comedy that was going to explore how people's amygdalas get hijacked and when you're fearful you make really bad decisions and could we make a movie that somehow showed what the world would be if we could give people a beat before their reptilian brain seizes control of their actions um, and that could we make it a comedy and could we make it you know do all of these tricks and you know I still I still hope that there is somewhere in, out there on the media landscape who's listening, who decides they they want to call and ask us to do that. Um, but I also realize that almost any movie, if it's done in a really heartfelt way, um, is capable of that. So you know, but I think mm. that informs kind of the choices that that I want to make going forward. All right. So last question, uh, and and Stephen, maybe you can answer about the laundromat, and uh, and Scott about the report. So one thing as a reporter, um, you know, you when you're writing a book or doing research on a big story, you, there's always like this holy shit piece of information. You get this like one thing that you, you stands out in your mind even later after it's all done. And I'm curious what the what the one part of the story, if you could pick one. Uh, is that you were like, what the fuck, uh, with both of the films? Well, in the case of The Laundromat, for me, that's probably the hotel room sequence in China. Um, that, Can you that, talk us, walk, us, walk the audience through that a little well, bit? Well, I want to ruin it other than to say when I read, and, and as, as strange as that particular story is, it's actually as close to the truth as anything that's in the film. Um, hmm the you really have one of those moments of wondering how somebody gets to a place where they think this is an option in order for me to get what i want i need to do this and that that was the story that really popped um when scott and jake bernstein and i were sort of going down the list of countries where this economic activity is prevalent and pulling out some of the more dramatic examples this one this one was in the mix right away. I think for me in the report, um, when I was doing my research, one of the really stunning revelations to me was when Daniel Jones, who the movie is about and was the lead investigator into the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, you know, one day he's sitting there and a, a document pops up on his screen and it was the CIA's own investigation into their program. So it wasn't work that some external force, it wasn't a commission, it wasn't an investigation. It was what Leon Panetta, like a good administrator, did when he showed up, which was, hey, can we do our own assessment of what we did because I want to know what the risks are. Now, somehow or another, that document shows up on, on, on Dan's server. Um, and it's... You know, it, it plays a role in the movie, and I don't want to give too much away about it. But it remains fascinating to me that if people are going to argue about the veracity of the report or its political intentions, there's a really easy way to just escape that whole rubric. And that is, what does that CIA-authored report say? 
and and why can't we all see yeah. it? And you know, it sort of is something that to me remains fascinating that that document really does exist somewhere in a safe. And I, I really would love to hear what it says because it would certainly clear up a lot of the arguments. Well, thank you both for taking the time today. This has been a, an amazing conversation. Uh, the Laundromat's out in theaters this weekend, and the report is, is it uh, mid-November? Is that right, Scott? Uh, we are in theaters November 15th. Great. Well, they're both incredible films, and uh, thank you, Stephen and Scott, for taking the time. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to my guests today, Stephen Soderberg and Scott Z. Burns. If you enjoyed this conversation, and it was a fascinating conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other fascinating conversations on other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts Radio com or anywhere you get your podcast don't forget to leave a review while you're there and as we just talked about if you don't have anything nice to say don't leave a review just go do something else go get a cup of coffee go for a walk listen to another podcast i don't care just don't be so mean thanks to the folks at cadence 13 for their production work and thanks of course to my sponsors this week BlinkistQuartz.com and Honey. Please support them the same way you support this incredibly fun, amazing, informative podcast. I'll see you next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.